Don't miss the magic and the men behind Talking Tricks with Cain and Abel live. We'll be at the following places. May the 31st, we'll be returning to the Brighton Fringe Festival. And then for the whole of that long weekend, we're there on June the 1st and June the 2nd. June the 14th, we'll be in Hastings. June the 26th to the 30th, we'll be performing at the Glastonbury Festival. And July the 26th to the 28th, we'll be at Kendall Calling. And then for the whole of August, we'll be at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. With two shows daily, Split Egg, a magic show about being twins, and The Two Magicians. Go to www.caneandablemagic.com for more. You're listening to Talking Tricks, the home of amazing stories from magic, circus, variety, and comedy performers. Hello and welcome to Talking Tricks, a podcast with us, Cain and Abel, two magicians with the exact same voice. And what a show we've got coming up for you. Bit of a bit of a nice fun week for us. Hastings Comedy Fringe. That went well, didn't it? Really? Yes. <laughs> is, that, is that what we're saying? It went well. It did go well. Okay, yeah, it went well. <laughs> we had a good time. Did you? I had a yeah, I had a good time. They had a good time. I bought a nice hat. You bought a lovely hat. Maybe we'll put a picture of the hat on. Hey, you know we normally do Gig of the Week. Here's a question I'm dying to know. And this isn't a let's set it up and I'll then ask the question. Generally don't know. Went to Elton John, didn't you? I did. Over the weekend, yeah. How was it? Brilliant. It was his last ever show in Cardiff. No, his last ever show in Wales. Okay. Yeah. It was in Wales. It was in Cardiff. Yeah. Me and my uh, good friend Kyle Myatt went. If people don't know Kyle Meyer, he's an internet sensation in he, the making. He's who wore it better, isn't he? He's who wore it better. Yeah. Every Sunday he does a hilarious who wore it better where he dresses up as someone. And he's slowly becoming sponsored by Primark. Slowly. Slowly but surely. Yeah. So me and him went to watch out and John and obviously we dressed up. Yeah. He went for the plain white big feathers on the shoulders kind of look mm-hmm. and I went for more of a casual weekday Elton John look which if I took the hat and the bow tie off I looked a lot like Michael Portillo right okay so great yeah what colour were your trousers well I must admit I, I copped out the other trousers and I just wore my black skinny jeans because you know they can go with anything really can't they well Michael Portillo likes a pair of black skinny jeans doesn't he as does Elton but it was a good gig it was a good gig. We were very popular around Cardiff because we were actually the only people dressed up. So there was lots of people asking for photos. Yeah, we got incredibly drunk. Oh, it's not like you. Lost each other. Oh, yeah. How long for? Like, till the end of the night, ended up having to go home and he was, he was there on the doorstep. In, in the Airbnb. So he went, he could get in, I key. Oh my goodness. The bouncers were taking me seriously. I was going up to all the clubs and saying, if you've got a guy in here dressed completely in white with big feathers on his shoulders, they said no. They said no. So I had a wristle on my own. A wristle? Yeah. What's a wristle? Well, it's like a fried potato thing. But on my on, in my search for Kyle Myatt, yeah, I walked past this uh, kebab shop, I suppose. Yeah. But they didn't serve kebabs. A late night takeaway joint, and it was absolutely packed, heaving. And I thought. Some cheesy chips, as you do when you're in Wales, yummy. And I wanted in, and everyone else was ordering wristles. They were going like, you know, chips and a wristle, burger and two wristles, four wristles. And I was like, what's a wristle? And this one guy went, I don't know what a wristle is. And I went, I'm English. And then they were like, it's like a deep fried potato thing. So I had one of them and a cheesy chip back. Yeah, three costume changes. Yeah. For Alton, uh-huh. not for me. Um, he was good. Did he? He was great. I didn't want it to end. No. It just flew by. Lots of nice instrumental bits. Um, yeah, go on. Any special guests? No special guests. Great. It's just about him, isn't it? All about him, him. and the band. I know all the old boys that have been doing it for years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ah, very nice. I saw the film when you were at the gig. Alright. I liked it. Yeah. It was good. And despite what the Russians were worried about, the gay sex scenes have not turned me gay. Well, not yet. <laughs> not yet. But apparently it takes 48 to 72 hours. Oh, well, there's still chats. Yeah. Yeah, but I didn't leap straight out of the Wolfram Stowe Odeon and straight down to uh, 
Soho to confront my sexuality. Right. Despite That's what, where you'd go, is it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Despite what Vladimir Putin is concerned about. Mm. Yeah. So there we go. But that talking of Soho... getting political then, wasn't it? It is. But talking of Soho, we've got a London comedy legend on the show today. Why, where have you been? Well, I've been... I've been to Kensington. Where who, all who lives in Kensington? Steve Best. You've been to see Steve Best? I've been to see Steve Today. Best. Today? Yeah. We've had, oh, we've had... I would have loved to have come and seen Steve Best. Well, yeah. Did he make you a cup of tea? We had two cafetiers. Yeah, good one. He makes a good cup of tea, Steve Best. Yeah, he... Yeah, we, well, we had coffee, but... He, he may have had a cup of tea first. Oh, you know what? We, I could have done double the length of podcast with Steve Best. Well, we today. should stop rambling. Yeah. I didn't realise you... Like, people are listening to me talking about rissoles and some guy getting lost in a white feathery suit. Mm -hmm. We could be listening to Steve Best talking about his amazing career. Yep. It's all coming up. Play it then. For us now. On Talking Tricks. The number one podcast for great stories from the world of magic, circus, comedy and variety. You're listening to Talking Tricks. Joining us on Talking Tricks is Steve Best, comedian, photographer magician and we're going to delve into all of those interests but what i want to know first is, is out of the free steve which was the first that uh, kind of really struck a chord with you was it was it comedy from an early age comedy from an early uh, i suppose so in the sense that we didn't have a television when we were growing up it was not a deprived childhood but we were fine but my grandma died that we got a television when i was about 13 so we started watching uh, funny enough, though, strangely, I'm going off thing, but at Christmas we used to nick her television and bring her and the television to our house and have Christmas with television, um, which was quite weird. But, so we used to listen to records, like things like The Goons, I'm Sorry I Read It Again, especially The Goons. I mean, my mum and dad were really into things like that, radio comedy. So we listened to a lot of comedy records. So I was really into comedy growing up. But my first thing was magic in the sense that I got addicted to circus skills in a way. I know you do circus stuff as yeah. well. So I used to, I used to juggle. I, that's why, I, and I was really into juggling. So before going to school, I used to do an hour of juggling and then go to school, come back and do another hour or so after school. So I practiced juggling. So I got up to kind of five balls. I did hoops and clubs. Um, but it, all these kind of circus, and I got myself a unicycle. I was really into things like, like, like all that stuff. Um, but magic, I was sold a or given a little one of those box of magic tricks when I was about 12, I think it was. And then I was just addicted to magic. So I went into the Young Magician of the Year, got to the final of that, the Polka Theatre. What year What year are we here? Jeez. I've, just, I've, my, I've, got, I've still got my little plaque somewhere. I don't know where it is. I think it was, could it be 85? It must be 85. Yeah. Jeez, yeah. It was the year that, I think he passed away actually, the guy who did, uh, uh, as a... Uh, uh, a, 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 um, a Chinese magician and he did it all to music right. and he won it that year and it was the year that uh, ah I have to think of the name in a minute he does a lot of magic for theatre shows he was second with his sister um, not Paul Keeve yes Paul Keeve that year yeah so he was second that year and I was I didn't get played because I, I I thought and this is the, where it was quite interesting because I did a, a, um, a talent show Epsom Playhouse that I won and I thought, I came back the next year and I thought you have to just change everything. So I, in my audition for the Magic Young Magician of the Year before the final, I did a routine. And I thought in the final, you do something completely different rather than, do, you know, hone that routine. Um, and so that, that's, I just thought something completely different. I did it to music. I was dressed as a tramp or something. It was really strange. And I don't know, it was, I wasn't properly rehearsed. But um, so, yeah, magic, massive into magic and juggling stuff. So that's where it all started. So, the 80s, what, what were some of the sort of magical influences for you then at that, at that early stage? Well, I think it was comedy magic, I mean, as in Tommy Cooper, yeah. it, was, it was a massive, massive, and I don't know what it came later, but this Steve Martin, his early days with his white suit, arrow through the head, was just phenomenal. I remember watching that on VHS, you know, tape that, and I watched it the first time, I thought, this, I don't get this, and then watched it again, and it was the really the best because he was coming out in the states when everybody's doing political stuff and observation he was just being stupid and he was juggler banjo player everything that i I, mean, I was playing the guitar as well so i used to uh, study the, i studied the guitar for like eight hours a day for years and years i'm proper proper into the guitar that's nothing we haven't covered yeah uh so 
you know, that kind of Steve Martin, he worked in a magic, I think he worked in a magic shop or something like that earlier Disneyland. Disneyland, yeah, Disneyland yeah. Disneyland magic shop. Yeah. Because Ed's reading his book at the minute. Born Standing Up. Yeah. Brilliant. It's the best, one of the best books on stand-up, actually. Ed will just kind of show me a page and be like, you need to read this yeah. here and there when we're on the plane or something. And yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It's great because it's kind of, as he was making it and saying he was having hard times because he was doing such, such different stuff and... And, uh, and and him generating material was quite hard, I think. He found it quite hard because it was, it's just so out there. But, yeah, it's a, I, mean, I think it stops when he started playing these big um, stadiums. Yeah. And he was saying that, that I th- it, you know, it's thousands of people, but you only need like 1% or 0.1% who are heckling, or, and that's a, a lot of people when there's 10,000 people there kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. So then, after the Young Magician of the Year, were you, did you kind of attack making it as a magician what were your kind of so, early career moves at that point so i was i was really good student at school and i was getting all a grades and i just went into my a levels and i got that's when i got really hooked on to magic and performing and i just just mucked up all my i just bunked off and and um uh started doing kid shows so i did kid shows for two or three years um and I thought this is what I kind of want to do, although I found it quite hard in the end because my mum was very ill and it, things kind of went all over the place after that little bit. But, um, and then I did this Garf- Garfield show, this, this touring magic-y show that went around all the theatres. The guy dressed up as a big Garfield cat. Someone got the rights to it. And I was the funny man on that, but it was such a badly put together show. I mean, really, and we got we got sacked off. And we went to Sunderland, and the, the magic prop table started rolling into the audience, things like that. So it was a, everything was so. It was actually quite funny with the crew. I mean, it was it was funny, but um, and then the, the big thing was I did a little audition because I was developing my own style and my own stuff. So I do things like the raccoon, Rocky Raccoon. But I was I, I took his routine and changed it to suit my style. I think that's the thing that magicians find hard to do. So I, I did a bit where the raccoon basically went up my bum and out my mouth. So I had a fake mouth, a fake head of the raccoon, and palmed it into my mouth. So I'd squeeze it on my bum, and the, it would come out my mouth. It was very visually very funny, but it was different to David Williamson's. I mean, I had bits of his in there, and I think I think. So I did this audition, uh, uh, these kind of holiday camps in um, Devon and Cornwall, uh, and I stormed it. I only had ten minutes, but because it was so different to what they normally see, which is kind of mainstreamy kind of act, um, and they booked me for an eighteen-week summer season. So that's really my start in showbiz. Is this eighteen weeks? I based in Exeter, just went all to Newquay, Torquay. I was great, but after a couple of weeks I was I was I was done you know but I had 18 weeks it was a huge season and I got sacked off a few because they just didn't get it uh, I also had to make 50 minutes out of it so I then really started writing and doing bits and bobs and getting magic and music and all this stuff um, so that was great that was a massive start and then I came back on onto the London circuit because I didn't know about the London circuit then, so. so I'm interested um, to talk about the, the holiday camps that yeah. you mentioned there because um, various people I've spoken to about that they often find that their, their act might be quite quirky and different and unique and then they start doing the holiday parks and they're like, oh, I need to change and become this other act for it to kind of land and work there and they have to change and sometimes people think, actually, now I'm going to just stay true to myself. Was there any kind of sort of, um, kind of consideration that actually maybe you just become more of a sort of straight edge comic and carry on doing those holiday parks or... Were you very much like, no, I'm going to stay true to myself and keep doing That's my a good, stuff? A very good question. I, I, my thing was I very much stayed true to myself because I got sacked off the ones that, that they didn't get. And I thought, actually, that's fine. I'm, I, um, and I, I remember getting into, I think it was in Newquay in this caravan park. And the guy who was the kind of compare on those nights was really into my stuff. And he would introduce me as something quite different to what the audience normally see. So a lot of the time, and it's you know it's quite condescending. You shouldn't be because the audience really get it. And and I found the the, the the holiday camp audience actually some of them were great. They really and sometimes they had separate rooms. So they said, look, this guy's going to do stuff. If you're into you know come and other other times it was the main room. And 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 the thing with holiday camps, you get different generations. You get the kids, you get the adults, and you get the grandparents. It's quite a weird setup. 
And when the kids are in there, it's a bit harder. But I mean, I wasn't really swearing or anything like that. So, but that's one thing I did. But then I've never done that really. But um, I, I think the biggest thing that made me change, kind of change my stuff and head down was the jongler circuit. Uh, compared to, I mean, that was even more heart ruthless in that sense. You just thought, well, you have to do it to stag and hens. You just you, that makes you into a, a comedian you don't want to be, rather than the holiday circuit, which is quite strange because that's the mainstream circuit. And the jonglers then became the mainstream circuit. If you think about it. So after the holiday parts, was jonglers around then? Were you straight in there, or you mentioned that the Lon- coming in and, and the London scene? What I'm interested to know what what that looked like then and the differences between. Um, Performing now. the London scene now. Well, well, that's uh, but so because I kept kind of true to myself in the sense that I wrote all my own stuff. That was the big thing, and that was that was what the London circuit alternative, putting my fingers as a bunny, alternative circuit was then. Um, in the sense, you can't you you know you've got to write your own stuff, but also it was obviously smaller than it is now, and it was can I say less professional in the sense that you, you know I came off quite a professional circuit I was getting paid a weekly wage or per per gig and then you come on and you have to do open spots which you have to do now but there was less acts doing it and I was also pretty good by then I had a really good five minutes out of my 45 minutes yeah. so you could, I could go and do an open spot and just storm it you know and, and then you get booked maybe two or three months later to do a proper 10 minutes and then 20 you get on the circuit much quicker now it's you know I hear, I hear it's massively hard because there's so many people trying to do it and yet the clubs uh, there's a dish washing machine going off in the background that's right isn't it <laughs> uh, the, 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 but, now, but now I hear that there's really separate circuits and, and when I started someone like um, Har Bloody Har or something like that they, they, they would have a professional night but they would put an open spot within that night so which the comedy store still does but very few clubs do that um, so I came on and, and got booked very quickly early on so that was quite good um, in that sense and kind of certainly nowadays it seems like loads of comedians run their own nights and there's actually a really nice kind of feel that actually it's performers you know running nights and they kind of look after you I'm interested was it similar kind of in those days or was there the, the more sort of dodgy businessmen running, <laughs> running these I clubs. think it was a dodgy... I, there were chances. There's always been chances. But I, I think that, that there were less acts, obviously, comedians running their own club. I mean, I actually started my own club in, in Epsom, where I lived for a while, the Doodah Comedy Club. And I ran it, beginning with Cathy uh, Dunning. And Cathy Dunning, who was, was an OK act, actually, quite a nervous person, she went... You know, we kind of split up after about uh, a year doing this club, and we passed it on. And then she went on to write The Weakest Link. And she's a multi, 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 multi-millionaire. Absolutely. I mean, I'm really happy for her. Absolutely happy. I mean, we used to kind of, you know, talk about the club and running the club. Um, so there was a bit of tit for tat. So, so other, other comedians who ran other clubs used to say, well, if you give me your club, I'll get, let, let you play my club. There was a little bit of that going on. Um, but I think generally it was people who, who ran comedy clubs because they want to make a little bit of money out of it, more businessy rather than comedians doing it. There's loads of comedians running clubs now, aren't there? but that's just to get stage time and, yeah. And I'm interested to know what kind of some of your early aspirations were at this point then. Was it just uh, you wanting to work, wanting to hone the act, or were you kind of looking for sort of TV fame and stuff like that? What, what were some of the aims of that? Well, I, th- I think there was less thought of TV fame. I think it was, it was quite... A, I, I actually really loved performing. I think that it was that you come, came off that kind of summer season onto the comedy circuit and you see all these people that, that, that were there and you just think, oh, this is great. And there's a real... Uh, and there was a lot more um, uh, variety to it as well. Some mad acts around and, and you know, poets and, and, you know, all within the same circuit. And, you, and, and after about a couple of years, you think, I can't believe I'm making a living out of it. This is great. You know, I've n- never had a job, never been to an interview, never... And it just carried on. And I think at the beginning, like, there were definitely people out there who had, a, had a, um, a drive to make it... They knew where they were going with it. You know, the Izards and all those kind of people who had just... had a, were, were so focused. Uh, Jimmy Carr, really, although he started a little bit later than I did. But he, he, he had a business sense to it. I had I just thought oh, I can't believe I'm making some money out of this and 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 you know and making good money then it was fine and so that was quite weird so I didn't have it was more just to perform yeah 
And you kind of mentioned there wasn't as many performers, but then did that make it kind of... Would you say it was kind of easier then to, to make a living out of it than it is now? Um, as a, Certainly. I think in the last eight years it's become massively hard as a professional comedian or because 20 years ago or so you you were making the same money per gig as you're making now. That's 20, 20 years ago. And, and also you can be doubling up. You could be doing the early, late at Jonglers and a gig in between. And Jonglers, you know, at the time were paying, I can't remember, like 160 or 200. I mean, out of town it was 200 or something. Like that, and a hotel. And that was then. I mean, you can't double up now. People were joking the other night that doubling up means doing a Friday and a Saturday. <laughs> you know, so it's like, you know, you, I mean, the people, Simon Bly did, I remember one night he did the early jonglers, early store, one in the middle, and then late store, late jonglers, five gigs. That was, you know, that was kind of over a thousand quid in one night then, you know. So, so and that was the being, you know, not known on television, doing a few corporates here and there, but making a really good living on the circuit. Um, but I, that's, you can't do that as a job in comedian now. Do you think it's um, kind of almost a compliment to sort of how uh, cutting edge and different and exciting that scene was then, that it's kind of birthed into this much bigger beast where, you know, so many more performers have, have been inspired to, to perform? Uh, do you th- uh, yes, I'm not sure. Do, have they been inspired to perform or they can see... I, I think the internet has is, is made it into something different in, yeah. in the sense that you, you, the audience has changed and, and, and how people want to watch comedy and, or how, how, just how, how it's changed. Because we used to do a big uh, university circuit as well through Avalon at the time, you know, 30 dates. And I supported Jenny Clare and Alan Parker, the Urban Warrior. Then I did my own tour with, you know, your big poster. And, and it was all set up to be live into the union, uh, student unions. And they're, they're the people who came to live shows in the big cities, Manchester, London, blah, 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 to, to see live comedy. But now they can get it, you know, they can see, see Bill Burr's special on, on YouTube. I mean, it's, it's just changed how people view stuff. What was the question? <laughs> it, it was almost, because we've got, we've kind of, in speaking about the comedy scene today and 20 years ago, um, it seems like it's, there's much more performance and it's, it's kind of a much bigger thing. And I wonder whether that's because it was so good 20 years ago. Um, yeah, I don't know what... Ca- yes, I, I, it, but it used to be a very amazing thing to do for the general public. If you said you were a comedian, they would just be... Because, you know, because it was such an underground kind of feeling to it and you have to go to a club and live. It's before the, the internet in, in that sense. Uh, uh, that that, um, that it was, a, it was a, I think it was much more special to be a comedian now. Now it's, you, 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 everybody can do it and try and put stuff on clips and things like that. So I still haven't answered the question properly. I'm not too sure why people are doing it now. I think, I think there's a... The problem is there's so many people doing it and there's relatively small people who are making a really good living out of it so that middle ground has gone which is a shame because that's where you've got to do your 10 12 years you know being a good comedian i mean a lot of people are getting on all these panel shows who who haven't really got a good 15 20 minutes they might have a good edinburgh show but as a live it depends what you want to do Mm -hmm. i suppose what you're trying to do i don't know and you mentioned that when you were in the Young Magician of the Year, you felt the need to develop a whole new act for, for the next round. I wonder, is that kind of something that has continued through your career? You always constantly created more and more stuff, or is, was it a case of honing that? What a great that question. Like, that, that is what's held me, held me back, I think, is I haven't. Yeah. It's madness. It's, it's, I put so much energy into doing other stuff, like my, my guitar or, or photography, and yet if I put that amount of hours into writing new... I'm, that is my advice to any comedian now, is just constantly write, and be and something I haven't done, actually. And, and I think... You, and that's what genres does to you, if you haven't got that ability to, to, to go forward and think, you know, have a big tunnel vision of this, I've got to make it this way, is that... You, you know, you want to please all the time. So the jungler's management, you know, uh, uh, mark you. So you've got to have a 19, 20 minutes of surefire stuff and it's got to be the same stuff. They book you for that. So you end up just doing the same 20 minutes for forever, for years and years and years. And the people who really kind of made it have written and been fearless, just, just been fearless. And that's what you've got to do. So 
funny enough for the, with the magic you know I, at the time I was changing all the time with the comedy I had some you know I developed in, and changed and chucked stuff out but once you've got your kind of core 20-30 minutes you kept to that and you shouldn't do you should just keep changing and what did that core 20 minutes look like? well it's just lots of gags very visual stuff um, uh, um, I brought in the guitar and inflatable woman drilling my teeth all that just visual gags really um, and a few routines like the Elvis routine and the cloth routine and things like that um, which you know really strong um, but so, something like that the good idea thing is that the Rocky Raccoon routine it took me years to get rid of it because I used to end with that an encore um, and just it was so strong that I couldn't get rid of it and eventually I did I don't know where it's in the cupboard somewhere I haven't used it for so long but that's an example of thinking you've just got to get rid of that and, and you know that's why Edinburgh in a way is good and something I didn't really do through my career is to, if you if you do Edinburgh every year you've got to develop a new hour or 50 minutes which is you know a hard task but but the people who, who do that move upwards yeah. you mentioned the Elvis app that's kind of one of the clips that people can find of you online yeah uh, what show is that on when you Okay, so yeah, so that was my purple patch of doing... So I did um, the big stage, Channel 5. Channel 5. Remember Channel 5? Is Channel 5 still happening? Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's like, now it's Channel 5 and Channel 5 star. Channel oh, okay. 5 USA. Well, I, was, I, I think I was in the, in the kind of beginnings of Channel 5 and, and um, I did... A, they cut my segment into two clips and they showed it on both two shows on the big stage and it absolutely ripped it on there it really did really well uh, and, and they weren't going to do it because I, I was at the time very naive I went to the studios and I was wearing a white top and you apparently you can't wear white with cameras so they dyed it with some tea or something like that and oh, it was, really? if you, I, I think it's what I think it, or I just changed it to a black one in the end because I, I found this really if you look on the clip it's on my I'm wearing really dodgy clothes I think but anyway it did, did really well and and um uh, I remember that someone, the, oh, I can't remember his name now, he's quite a famous uh, critic of, of, in the Sun newspaper of all places, which, um, uh, and, but he gave a massively growing, glowing review of it and I thought this is great and then after that the producers, um, we got together and I wrote a show called The Individuals, um, it was me, Paul Zerdin and Joe Pasquale um, and I wrote this very visual idea format and we got to the production stage and talking about it um, and it was going, that, that was when it was really going somewhere and then it just didn't quite work and then Pasquale nicked half my act and I tried to sue him. That's another story. <laughs> we might not go into that. But yeah, he's known for that a little bit. Really? Oh, oh yeah. But Stuart Lee does a fantastically funny, uh, you look it up, YouTube yeah. clip of, um, uh, of, of Pasquale. So did did it make it into the courts? You and you and Pasquale? No. I, strangely <laughs> enough, I was with the same management at the time, and it just got it got it, it got uh, clown like. It was really funny how these emails were going backwards and forwards, and I was accused of tittle tattle and all this stuff. And he, and and I invoiced invoiced him, <laughs> and then he but it got it. I won't won't go into because I you know, I don't want to slag people off. But it 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 was quite funny the email exchange. Maybe I'll write it into a book one day. But yeah, and get sued myself. For, Anyway, but yeah. And um, were you kind of, you mentioned before we started recording that you kind of toured with quite a lot of comedians that the listener will probably be familiar with. Um, kind of tell us a little bit about that. Well, that was, that was quite early on, actually. Uh, I was, um, Frank Skinner was the one, he, he heard about me. I don't know where and how. And he, and he wanted to, he was doing a massive, this is when he was huge. I mean, he was, it ended up doing 2,000 seaters. That was the top, come in what year it was, we'll find out. You can bleep it in. Um, but it was, it was, it was a huge tour. It, it, it um, and it, that was the one that ended up at Battersea Power Station. It was the one that was in the Guinness Book Records. Before the big people used to do stadium tours, this was, I think it was 6,000 people and had big screens on the side. It was the biggest live comedy stand-up show um, at the time. Um, but he came to see me in South End, I think it was, doing a really quite a tough gig. Uh, and I did my set and he said, yeah, I want you for the tour. So we did 80 dates. We went to the five-star hotels all the time. We, you know, treated, we went and had a tour bus. Fra once Frank's on tour, he's on tour. So, um, but I, yeah, I found that quite hard, that bit. Because we were in Watford and we had to stay in a hotel rather than just come home. You, we stayed on tour. 
Um, but yeah, it was a great experience because, uh, you know, it was somewhere it was tough because he, he did have his own audience. It was quite a football-y kind of crowd. Um, and, he, you know, he didn't introduce me. For, I, and I learned a lot that on that tour because I did a little few for Harry Hill as well when Steve Bowditch couldn't do it at the same year. And, you know, Harry had this, he introduced me on the backstage mic, you know, I've got a friend coming up and with his voice and, and, and it was a very warm introduction and the audience were ready. But for me, I had the, the tour manager just saying, welcome on stage. And they thought it was Frank because I had a little, po on the post, I had a tiny little kind of with special guest, the best, whatever. Um, so, you know, the audience were kind of expecting Frank and, you know, you walk on stage, 2,000 people, who are you, who are you, who are you, you know, that stuff. So it's pretty... Um, I, I sometimes I stormed other times in my in Manchester. I, I invited some friends over, uh, uh, kind of friends of my, my wife's at the time, who, who you know, kind of old older guy, older people, and they'd never seen me before. Three and a half thousand people, Manchester Apollo, I think it was, uh, I think it's that, and they just stared me out for twenty minutes, twenty five minutes. And they, you know, you have to see them after and explain. But so so there were some tough gigs, um, but there's some great gigs, and it really taught me about playing to big audiences. Yeah. And then I did Omid Jalid, a few of Omid's later, and then, and then um, Red Dwarf guy, Craig Charles, yeah. did loads of his, um, and they were great because the audience didn't know what to expect with Craig, and they were quite, they were great with me, I really stormed it, um, yeah. So what, if someone was kind of um, going into maybe their first tour as tour support, uh, what would be some of your, your top tips for them? Well, it's, it's hard because the, the, a lot of those tours, they want to start dead on time. Um, so, uh, you know, I had lots of times where we played leisure centres as well when they couldn't find a, a venue big enough for him. Uh, they opened up leisure centres. So people were being shown to this. So 8 o'clock or 7.30 sharp, they would start. And so you have a lot of people come to their seats. So it, and I'm not really a comparing style of comedian. I just got my stuff and I go for it. And I, so I would develop some kind of opening to say that you're not the star or whatever it is and, and, and do a little bit of comparing as people are shown to their seats. But also, you know, I would talk to the, the star, whoever's doing it, and say, look, how can we do this so that I'm introduced nicely? Because I think that's really important, that first couple of minutes. Make sure everything's working. Because I remember going out in front of 2,000 people and the sound tech, who's a great guy, but... Uh, all you had to do is make sure the mic was live and you, you're in front of someone else's audience and the mic's not on and it's just the worst feeling. So that, that happened a few times actually. It's horrible, really, really hard to get out of because people see you on stage just looking like you're standing there. In actual fact, you're trying to say some jokes. So that was hard, but yeah, yeah. And then around this time then, what other kind of, you know, there's, there's the London... London scene, there's the, the whole sort of UK comedy scene, there's support stuff. What other places were you working? Well, that, that was a time I just flew, uh, uh, not all over the world, but there were these expat gigs. So there was Hong Kong, which I did twice or three times um, for different people. And then I went out to um, South Africa about three or four times. There was a lovely festival in South Africa in Cape Town, the Baxter Theatre. I, I, the guy who was running it was a bit dodgy with the money, I think, eventually, and, and it was um, it was all went through Hannah Chambers at the um, management, and she was booking some, you know, it was great, it was so fun, and we put up in five-star hotels, um, and it was the, the theatre, 400-seater, beautiful audience, that was for something like 20 or th a month it was, I think it was, uh, and then I went back again to Johannesburg um, to do a, a gig there, uh, and then back to Cape Town. So that, that was a lovely, lovely experience. Um, and then I've been to Bali, been to um, Indonesia, been wherever, uh, to Kuala Lumpur, uh, all over actually. The only place I haven't done is the Australian New Zealand festivals. I, didn't, I haven't been over there. You've been over there? Yes. All right. Yeah. That's something I'd love to, really love to have done. I've got a mate over there that, in Brisbane that I've just haven't visited, but I've always been waiting for a gig, but I didn't get round to doing all that. We only, we've only done Adelaide, and right. I feel I should go and do the other ones. Yeah. Um, Adelaide's a funny festival, yeah. as in um, it's solely for the locals. Right. And there's probably too many shows on right. for yeah. the locals. And, you know, I have friends from Adelaide that will go and watch, like, one show during the whole festival, and it'll have to be on a Saturday between 
six and ten o'clock really? otherwise they're not interested oh my goodness so um the weeks can be a bit tough yeah yeah um the weekends are normally good um but it's a good place to it's nice to go yeah no i i did i've always been and i kind of thought i'd do it before kids and then somebody had kids and then thought oh it's gonna be a bit complicated because it so it's a long way to go for so you might as well go for a proper month or t- you know and do it all over there but so i i didn't happen but um yeah, so I, I so I was doing loads of shows all over the place, and they were, they were great. And and in the end, you end up um, taking your partner and, and spunking the money over there. But you come back just as though you 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 know with no money. But you've the fact is is that you've been out to somewhere you've never been and would never go to, and have you know been out there a month or something like that, and it was great. So was that Cape Town Funny Fest? No, or was it, it was called. I think it's pre to that then. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what's going on there now. I know that there's Cape Town Funny Fest, which okay. sounds very similar. Right. Um, that people go out and it'll be like a month of shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's just the way they do things in I, South Africa. I don't know. I mean, what we did realise was that... The, 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 I mean, I work with... Um, who's the famous man now on the, the, the uh, in America who does the show? Ah... Uh. I've got a picture of him. I wanted to get him in my book. Uh, English? No, South African. South African? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Trevor Noah. Trevor Noah. Yeah. So I worked with him quite a few times, actually, out okay. South Africa. And, and the, the last time I did work with him was Johannesburg, and he was in the fest on, the, on there, and he was just blew it apart. I mean, he, he was actually already really quite well known out in South Africa. I mean, a bit of a star out there. And you know, I didn't understand half the accent. A lot of it was all accents and politicians and all that stuff. But he, he, he they, they couldn't follow him. We just couldn't follow him. He's an amazing act. Um, so yeah, what we say? Where are we? Cape Town, Cape Town festivals. Yeah. yeah. So then, and then, we is this around the time that you were doing the, the flyouts? Okay, with the the, the flyouts uh, were. After the summer season, the Exeter, when I was based in Exeter. Yeah. So, but before that, I just remembered, remember the flyouts because I did those, but before that, I was in Cyprus. That's where I started. That's how my, my showbiz career really started. It was before the ex, before the um, summer season. So I, my dad was doing some accounts for this restaurant in, in Paphos, in Cyprus, just out of Paphos. And um, this restaurant was fantastic food, but it was all serving expats. I mean, really was. It was all these kind of expats out there. And uh, I used to go around the tables doing close-up magic. Uh, I was really into I had some really lovely, f- the floating match on the... Uh, oh, what's it great, called? yeah. Yeah, some, but some really nice magic as well. I mean, some, I was really into my sleight of hand then as well. And then, so I'd do the magic around the tables... And then I'd also be playing the guitar. It was really weird. <laughs> I had everything. So I'd sit in, in there and play the guitar because I was kind of studying the guitar for, forever. And then at the end of the night, I'd do a little five-minute routine. Kind of, it was a kind of spirit cloth routine. That's kind of it, I think. And maybe the raccoon had come in by then. So literally five minutes. And that's how I started developing a stand-up routine. So, so, and when I came back, that's when I think I started kind of mucking around with the summer season. So then going back to after the summer season, the flybacks at Thompson, I did two seasons, two summers, but they were long summers. Yeah. You know, you start in, you know, what was it, March, April or something. And then, um, and they were great for me, although some of them were hard. I mean, you were outside on stage sometimes. And again, it was similar to the, you know, it's like Butlins abroad in that sense. It, it, it was the whole family there, you know, a lot of chips to eat, that kind of feel to it. And you weren't allowed to do certain things, like you weren't allowed to talk about flights, food, the, the resort, I think. Uh, so it was really your kind of comedy that, that stood out rather than observational stuff. So it, my stuff worked because it was very silly and, and that, was it. that was it. So I like that. That was great. Yeah. Well, regular listeners to this podcast will know that some weeks we record our little intro and we are in Greece or Paphos because yeah. yeah. uh, we do the teary flybacks at the minute, which they will know. Um, is that, is that something you enjoyed? Because we were enjoying it at the minute. I, I did love it. I mean, I met some really nice people over there. Uh, and I, I think you, you guys go as a, a, a two of you, isn't it? So there, there were times when you were kind of flying out from... I remember having to go from Birmingham a lot of the time. So you fly out from Birmingham 
and then so you drive to Birmingham, leave your car, come back, and then you come home, and then two days later you go back to Birmingham. It was it was full on. You know, I was doing Corfu roads, uh, Bened, Bened, it wasn't Benidorm, it was another one. I can't remember what it was. I think I'll be in a minute. But it was in Spain, and and it was um, and some of them are better than others, and uh, often uh, there was only one time they mucked up my flight, and you have to you go from one, and you end up going back to another one. You've left your car in Birmingham, and you end up in Heathrow, and so it it was full on. But it was before kind of kids, and it was great. I mean, it was great, and it, sometimes you get a bit lonely out there. You're on your own, um, uh, yeah. But I remember hiring mopeds and going around the islands. It was great, yeah. Did you go? Did you go for a swim before you before your shows? Uh, mostly not before. What time were your shows? Is it late night? No, it wasn't late night. Late it was night. it was kind of family time, kind of seven eight. The kind of red coats as such. They used to do a little bit of a a chat and a bit of a dance or something like that, and then they bring you on as this star act. Um, and but I used to do somewhere. I did my own, just me. And then there was times when I did me doing about forty minutes, fifty minutes, and then there was a singer on after me. So there's an interval, then a singer. Um, and that was okay as well, yeah. Well, I, I, we got roped into, um, as well as doing our show this year. So we'll fly, let's say, Rhodes is where we normally go. So we'll do one gig in Rhodes, down the road, do another gig the next night in Rhodes. And then the final night that we're there, um, I've been roped into being the magician in the illusion show. So oh. turning the boxes round, opening the door for the women to get in. But whose show? Up. Someone else's show? For the cast illusion show. Oh, they they go out there as well. So where we work, they have a cast every night of the week. Oh, okay, okay. And they do like singing and dancing shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we basically cover their nights off. Oh, I got you. So they yeah. have a night off, and we're the fly out guest right. act. Um, but then, yeah, they've got roped me into to being a, a box jumper. Really? And all that. Is that so? Did you have you ever played around with illusions or anything? No, I do. If they're done well. I, I, I think they're great. I mean, they can be just big boxes and things appearing and disappearing. If it's really nice choreographed, then they're, they're fantastic. But never, I, I, I didn't have the money, I think, to invest. I think that's the thing. I had, I had, um, I had aspiration, not aspiration, but I want, want to do it in my comedy show. So I wanted to do maybe, um, the, you know, the, the joke seat where it goes up, the, the, the seat falls down and the... Uh, the, the thing goes up your bum or something like that yeah uh, or, or the snowstorm or something you know that that kind of but but not or some illusions i could do on myself because i'd never have an assistant um or floating i'd love the idea of i was toying with the idea of trying to float while playing the guitar yeah that'd be cool yeah but it's just thousands of pounds and you just think how can i make that into you know profit if i'm going to do it and how, where am i going to do it uh, you know, the comedy circuit didn't really allow for that, you know. But I, I do like, I like it if it's done well. Yeah. Have you, do you do, you do illusions or are you more... No, this is, yeah, yeah we're just classic stand-up yeah. comedy magic, yeah. really. But, yeah, this year they, this is the first yeah. and did it, I've had with illusions. Ever. And what did you feel? You feel, you liked it or you thought... I do like it. Yeah. I, I, similar to you, I just never saw illusions fitting mine and Ed's characters. Yeah. And... It's such a big outlay in yeah. cost, and actually, a lot of the time, the stages probably that we work on yeah. big enough to yes, have an illusion. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was just kind of. But you could make any illusion fit your character. I think if you write, it's probably right. Yeah, and I but, but I just um, yeah. It's really it's my, really good fun to do them. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, my, I think my thing all the way through my career is I love skill. So if I see someone great at the piano, or great at the guitar or great at sleight of hand I, uh, I, I there's something about someone putting in the hours and I always thought with illusions you're just click, doing this I mean it's alright if you do some really like David Copperfield in a way I went when I was out in Boston my wife had a job out there for three I went out to Boston for three get, kind of gave up for a while um, but I remember I saw David Copperfield in, in Boston mm-hmm. in, in the States um, and it was it was interesting because you know he actually is pretty decent, isn't he? At some of the slights. He I've seen Copperfield once and kind of went because I was in Vegas and thought I should go and see him once yeah. I'm here, and came away with a new appreciation for him. Well, I came with both. I came with appreciation with that, but also how cheese. I mean, it was just I've never seen anything like it. Uh, it's so American cheese. But I was at the back of the theatre, and the first 
five, six minutes before he came on was a video of him. And I thought it, it was a montage of who he's met, where he's done magic, who he was. And I thought it was going to lead into a magic trick or into 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 a bit of a parody but it was it was just him saying how great he was it was i was watching i think this is and the audience were cheering and all this stuff and i think this is just you're so big but so over the top arrogant with it but it was funny in the end but it wasn't meant to be funny um and you know you know but the illusions were you know he's a great performer he's you know he's a great performer but yeah i found it very cheesy yeah did you they like that in america yeah 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 yeah, totally well i mean we're masters of self-deprecation in the UK, yeah. aren't we, really? And yeah. any kind of acknowledgement of achievements has to be, like, tongue-in-cheek or taking the mitt. Totally. Otherwise, think, UK audiences are like, Meh. Absolutely. I mean, com- comedians are the same, I think, in the States. You know, the, you, you get the compare to, to say everything you've done um, before you're introduced on stage, you know, the star of the whatever. But here, everybody's saying, no, don't, don't break. But, you know, like, even last the other night, I, I said the comic I was on last, I said, don't, don't say I'm a headline. You know, like, I would tell him to play even that down. Um, just I was the last one to get there. And that's what I was going to say. <laughs> but, but, you know, I just, you know, if you play it up, you, the expectations of the audience, it's all right in the States because they love it. But I think over here, they think, oh, what a big head. You know, I don't know him. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> anyway. Maybe going back on something that we were chatting about a minute ago, but something that I kind of always find interesting is when we do shows that are kind of billed as our show, whether that's at a fringe festival or just, you know, somewhere and you know that everyone is there to see you. And then there's the alternative where actually, even at a holiday park where they're there for the holiday and you're just a surprise. And also on a comedy bill where they're there just to see comedians and to a degree is still a surprise and sometimes I kind of feel you've really got to get your character and your information across really quickly so that they know who you are and they understand you and like you. I wonder in your years in the industry whether you found a, a secret to that. Um, I, I, I think I've developed this and I think John just did that a little bit to me where you, I think it's the nature of what I do is I'm very f- quite fast paced there's very few places where people can heckle um, and if they do, I just muck around with it rather than do a really horrible put down because it minds. The thing is, is that is comedy is so subjective. Is is uh, even last night I was at a tennis club in Sutton and I was part of a bill. I was on last, and it was it was a tough audience. They were a bit sluggish as an audience, but but I just saw you know someone in the in in the second row just not going for it. Just give me daggers for whatever reason and her partner was really laughing but I, I sometimes I used to comment on that but you just think well they've got their own something's gone on and or they just think you're not funny that's fine as well I, but so there was a time I would I would talk to the audience and say what's going on you know but you just can't but um I I think you've just got to stand your ground and and do what you think is funny or what you think is good magic wise and just 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 do it because you're always going to get people um, who are going to... I mean, I remember seeing Harry Hill in Battersea Jungles years ago and half the audience were just pissing themselves, just finding... couldn't think anything funny. The other half were just hating him. Mm. And, he, you know, but once he became famous, I suppose it was interesting because then people came to see him because they love him. You never get someone coming to see him because they hate him. So, yeah, there is a, there was a massive difference, I think. So there's only a few times I've done it. I, I did Edinburgh, my own show, but even then people were coming on the... on not not knowing me. I hadn't built up any real fan base. Um, I started trying to... So I think even if people are coming to see you, unless they've seen you before, um, you're still going to still be quite... Unless, until you make it really famous, mm. I think. But even then I've heard people, you know, someone like Kevin Bridges, who's, you know, fantastic stand-up, he gets a lot of heckling at his gig. And I remember doing some photography... Um, We've got to come on to that, don't we? Uh, at Lee Mack's show at the Apollo, and he was getting heckled quite a bit. And even Jimmy Carr, I, I, I did some photography there at the uh, 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 Brixton Academy. And, but I think he kind of asked for it a little bit. But some of it was quite nasty. Mm. It wasn't kind of good... Do you know what I mean? It, it, there was something about it. You think, actually, you, why are you here? But I think a lot of people who come to shows, uh, partners, who... That Stuart Lee does a whole thing about it, that, that 19 of... 10% of the audience have been dragged along because the partner loves Stuart Lee, but the, the other person doesn't know who he is, really. So you're going to get that as well. Yeah. Um, let's talk about 
photography. Hey. But before then, I'm going to ask you a question that people ask me a lot and I don't have an answer for. Oh my goodness. Um, best ever gig and worst ever gig? Well, uh, I, I think I've got one. Best ever gig, I, so I did, um, th- that sticks in my mind just because... Um, nothing could touch me so I did I'd done I was doing the Frank Skinner tour and he was playing the Hippodrome in Birmingham uh, and so he was there because it's kind of his hometown he was there for six nights at the Hippodrome uh, you know 1500, 2000 seat whatever it was selling, sold out uh, I was on before him uh, did fine I remember and then I went over to the Glee Club which is literally across the road in Birmingham and that's about 300 seat to 350 I think it was and I booked I was booked to do it anyway because I knew I was there and so it was a great double. What a great double up. Um, and I, I just, I've never ripped it so hard. I mean, it was the best gig I think I've ever done. I mean, encore and, and more or less a standing of Because I think it, I just played a 2,000-seater to an audience that had come to see someone else and I did fine and I did exactly the same stuff at the Glee Club. And because the audience had just come to see comedy, I was so on fire, I was so in the zone. And so that must be my best gig. There we go, could answer that one. Yeah. Um, that I remember. And the worst gig, uh, I suppose I did, I did Glastonbury. Okay. I did Glastonbury Festival on, I can't remember what year it was, but it was the wettest on record at the time. Right. It was horrendous. I mean, it, people, you know, the toilets were, everything was a toilet basically. It was bogged up. I mean, really wet. People wearing Wellington boots getting stuck in the mud. And the com- I was in the comedy tent. And it was a year, so it must have been a long time ago, Corking the Juice Pigs, who Phil Nickel yeah. was part yeah. of. They were on... Uh, it was, must have been about 7, 8 o'clock at night. No, it wasn't... Or 8, 9 o'clock, I can't remember what time it was. But it's the comedy tent. is where the compare introduce act, compare introduce... I mean, it just goes throughout the day. Mm. And the audience come in and out the tent. It's, about, it's a big tent, about 1,000, 1,500 you know, people sitting on the floors. And uh, so caught me in the reduced and they stormed it. I've never seen anything like it, like mine at the Glee Club, but more. They got two standing ovations, two encores, I think it was. And then after them, uh, Brendan, I think Brendan Burns was comparing and he couldn't, he came back on and they just wanted more of Corky. And they introduced Mr. Methane after that. Do you know Mr. Methane? He's very fun. I don't know what his real name is. Wears a leotard and farts at will. He's like an old, I think there's a French uh, turn of the century last century act that used to be able to fart at will so sucking air up his arse and then fart it out and it's, it's true stuff when he used to put micro he used to put talcum powder over his ass to make sure it wasn't on tape and doing it for real so he went on straight after corking the juice pigs and he stormed it as well because he was just farting <laughs> and then he could shoot pellets out of his out of a pea shooter from his fart the power of his fart i mean it's funny yeah and then uh and there was no break and then brendan came on and introduced to me and that was the first time I think my, my wife at the time had come to see me live. So we went to Glastonbury for the, because we saw, I think, I can't remember who was on, Sting was on or something like that. So there's a lot of music on, obviously, Glastonbury. And then I went on straight afterwards and um, it was just, just stares at me for 10 minutes. I had to do, I think, 10 or 15 minutes. And I kind of felt that I kind of got through it. But there was no kind of booing. It was just, just really the, the difference between the acts. And then um, I came off stage and people coming up to me said, you all right? And I, I said, yeah, I'm kind of all right. Yeah, I think I'm... And he said, well, are you sure? And I, what I didn't know was that when I unset my props, because I had lots of different props and things like that, there were little uh, round mud balls. So people had been throwing mud at me. Well, I, I, none have hit me, so I didn't realise. But, you know, it's just loads of little mud balls. So people have been chucking mud at me while I was on stage for 10, 15 minutes. So that, most of them are worse kind of gig. Yeah. yeah. is a tough place to play. I've got lots of people. I think festivals generally can yeah. be really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when was this interesting photography start then for you? So I, I, I have dabbled in photography for a long, long, long time. So I, I, I did some... When I was doing stand-up, I... My flatmate was working for Victim Support, this charity, and I was into my own, I was kind of developing my film in dark rooms and just doing courses and things like that. So I was always into photography. And I did, I did a little pro, I, for some reason, I did a pro job for Victim Support. Uh, I, had to, I had to do some bungee jumping, um, which I'm scared of heights. So I had to go to the South Bank, someone did it off a crane. Um, 
and that got in their magazine and I did another one for them. So I, I kind of toying with that anyway at a, a, a certain time and then it kind of drifted and then um, I just I just had this film camera at the time and I was going backstage and then it turned into, I thought actually, and I was backstage and I was gigging with so many people I just thought I'd just take a picture of them backstage and that was it and I was putting them on at the time Facebook has just started I think and I, I started um, just putting them on Facebook I'll gig with this person uh, and then I got a little Ricoh camera which is a nice little digital camera um, and started taking with that as well and and, um, and then I think it was Bob Mills or a few other people said why don't you do something with it um, so I, I yeah so I decided to um, uh then go back to the comedians and say, look, give us a one-liner joke and four or five facts and when you started. Uh, and then they started coming in, so I just collated all this, all this stuff. They didn't know what I was going to do with it. And then I started putting on these kind of sites on Snapfish or coming on words where you can develop your own book. Uh, and I toying around with that. And then I bumped into um, Drew Barr, who was, um, he was a comedian. He's a very funny guy, but he, he ran a design company, um, graphic design company. And he said, why don't you make it into a book so he taught me a little bit about InDesign and Photoshop and um, we did the first book Comedy Snapshot 2014 I think it was um, and it was great no one had done it I didn't realise that it was such a, a little it was just a little snapshot of the circuit I mean I've got a lot of acts in there Joe Branley Mac Harry Hill all the people I kind of gig with um, uh, and also kind of very circuit comedians Ian Stone Mike Gunn Mark Mayer we kind of all good mates as well and they're all lovely. They all gave me their stuff. Sean Lock got I got in that as well, and um, and we kind of he had a little publishing wing to his design company, and we published that. And um, I was very naive about the whole publishing company, so that came out, and I carried on taking photographs, and I got you know, I got into some much better cameras, and I started got, getting backed by Fujifilm a little bit, who were into lending me some cameras, and then so I did the um, second book, Jokerface, but that went through a crowdfunding publisher that was that was connected with Penguin, so they had a distribution wing to it as well. So that got proper, pro proper publishing um, deal on that. Um, and that came out in something, I can't remember what it was now. And then, so, but I carried on taking pictures. So I'd like to get a third one, but, 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 but following on from that, I started getting really into the arty side of photography. So while I was just doing little portraits of people, I was also doing backstage and front stage shots. And I was trying to get some really different kind of angles and and the big thing was the access is that very few photographers have got access to backstage and that's where the kind of not magic happens but it's very interesting what happens backstage compared to on stage because they're very different beasts really so I just kind of wanted to get some of the really poignant shots backstage um, and so I carried on taking some really lovely shots and um, so I did an exhibition up in Edinburgh with the uh, it was called um, Back to front, I think it was, but now it's kind of exposure to risk. This idea of, of um, which I quite think is a quite nice title. There's one of the pictures got into the Saatchi Gallery, and I've got an exhibition in October with more of the art, arty stuff. But um, that's where it is at the moment. I want to talk about that exhibition, but before then, um, I think it was in the um, exhibition in the Pleasance. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to tell you what my favourite mm -hmm. photo was, um, and I can't remember who the two comedians are in it, but I'm sure you will. And it's... Michael Fabry and Joe Roundtree. Is, is it when the one guy's just come off and the one guy's Michael just Michael Fabry, off? Joe Roundtree. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that a lot of people's favourite? That's or? the one that got, got... Well, the one of three actually got kind of accepted the Sarchi, and that's the one that's always in the exhibition. Right. Because that is so comedy, that. That's so backstage. Um, so, yes, that one is one of my favourite. Now, you know, that's the one that will be a kind of limited edition print, I think, because... It's not, they're not famous, but it, it kind of is great. So you've got Joe Roundtree with his head on the standing up, haven't you? Yeah. And he's about to go on. And you've got Michael Fabry on the settee, lying down, smiling, as the, and he's finished. And it's just really, I mean, it's a really nice moment, I think, yeah. So that's your favourite? Yeah? It is, and I think it's because it's, it is this, those two sides of being a performer that, is really hard to describe to people right. that aren't a performer what it's like yeah. having just gone on and just come off. And I remember when I first met my girlfriend and I don't really get nervous anymore, but I used to run my own night at that point, which was a magic night. And I used to get really nervous about everything going well. And I just remember her saying to me once, I don't know why you do this. 
Right. And I just think in that picture, it's just a really good um, representation of the, well, I suppose there's three emotions, isn't there? There's before you go on, when you're on, and once you've come off. And I just think it's just... It just tells it so well what it's like. Yeah, no, it's, it's, there's something about that picture and it, because it was so... I was just sitting down. I, I think I hadn't gone on then either. So I was, I was headlining. So it was quite weird actually taking the photographs and being on as well. And I think it's... You know, I'm getting very good feedback from people in the art world, I suppose, because they think, oh, you know when to capture the shot. But it's because I did do it myself I think that's the thing and, and, and that's, the, that's the secret I think you've got to know the exposure and how to take a camera picture I think as well but yeah and that's nice I, I, it's, it's, um, and that's something I really want to do I, I, I got a really kick out and it's a strange one because you get a, a, a belated not belated yeah the kind of recognition from that so stand up is so immediate you either live or die, you know on that moment but something like photography in the other arts it, it's it, it's it's you know people look at it and admire it or not you know so it's a, it, so that's why comedy is it's such a different emotion i think when you do it but um yeah is there any other photos you've taken that kind of stand stand out to you because of maybe the emotion or the story yeah that, well there's one on stage you. actually of the one of mike gunn have you seen that through the curtains? Yes. So that's, that's the on stage. That's one of my own favourite on stage ones. Is it's really lonely, and he's so there's a lot of black in in the picture because there's you, you, I've seen a gap in the curtains on the side of the stage at the Hammersmith Apollo, so it's a massive room, but he's just on stage and the lights kind of uh, shining through down on him the spotlight, but you can't see the audience. You just see him through the gap in the curtains, but there's you know, three and, three and a half thousand people in the audience, and yet he's on his own in the, and that's quite a, quite a, that says it all as well, I think, about stand-up. Um, so I do like that one. Um, there's quite a few, actually. I mean, I've got to get it down. I've got, you know, thousands of pictures. I've got to get it down to 15 for this next exhibition. And it's, you think that's quite easy, but it's not. It's the, 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 you know, you want to get really classy, great pictures that says what you're trying to say. Is there a bit of a, a struggle with getting that balance of, I mean, for an exhibition of having, you know, picking big name comedians to go in it, but then also getting those stories? Do you kind of have to struggle getting that? Balance? Yeah, there's a few, that's, that's a good point, actually, because the media and the public, that's kind of what they want to see is famous people. But... I think you're right, there is enough in there. I've got one of Jimmy Carr, and I've got one of Alan Davies I might use. Uh, I've got to go to them, make sure it's okay with them. But uh, Although Alan Davies used one of my pictures for the back of his DVD cover, which is great, so he might be all right with it. Um, but, uh, so, yes, I think it's good to get some famous people in there. But I don't think it has to be the majority, because if, you're, if the idea behind it is about stand-up, and people's interest is in the emotional behind it doesn't have to be famous it's more about the arty so i mean you can get very arty about it but but i think you're right in one sense the media and if you want to try and sell the exhibition and get people to come and see it are more interested in fame which is a shame in a way but you know i think you can just about do it yeah and so give us the the details behind the london exhibition then. well it, it's moved actually it was meant to be in july but uh <laughs> it's it's at the uh the observatory photography gallery in Marchmont Street in Russell Square, uh, just off Russell Square, uh, and that's hopefully going to start in October. We haven't got the final date, but it's going to be hopefully in October. And it might run for six months or so, because I really like the stuff. I mean, it's funny because I just passed the gallery and, and just went in on the off chance and, and showed him some postcard size of the stuff. And, and as a comedian, and not I don't, as a, I don't actually go out and say I'm a photographer, which I do, do more so now, but you're never sure what people think or the people in that industry think of your stuff. So it's quite... And he was just, you know, thought some of them really stood out. And you don't... You forget that the general public don't have that access. So it is quite interesting. I think it's quite an interesting subject. And kind of on access, I suppose, are most people pretty happy for you to be snooping around with a camera backstage? I know, you know, it's, it's gigs that you're on the bill of, but... Has there ever been kind of issues with people not wanting you to, to take photos and stuff? Yes. Um, and also, I've in the last couple of years, I have gone out of my way, if I'm not on the bill, to get someone that I want in the book or 
approach them, some, you know, some of the famous people. So I did, recently did the Comedy Store 40th birthday show and party. And there were people like Paul Merton, um, McIntyre, who I, I, was, I knew him on the circuit, but I just couldn't get him to come into the book for, for whatever reason. But he's... Uh, and Paul Merton, you know, he, he was fine. I took his picture and I, and I mentioned what it was for. Then he, he hasn't got a fa- he doesn't use his phone or email. He hasn't got an email or so it goes to his wife. And and I thought he was really up for it. And I and I met, met over the years. I met him a few times. And 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 I, I eventually I approached him. So like, I take me a picture. Can I? And and a lot of the time with the famous people, if you get the answers there and then rather than email them because it they'll never get back to you. Yeah. So David Baddiel was great actually because I remember a couple of years ago at the Ealing Comedy Festival I took his picture I said this is what I'm trying to do and he said oh, I'll give you the answers now. I said oh great and he just sat down gave me the answers and I didn't have to go back and forwards but so eventually I got Paul Merton and Paul Merton goes nah I don't want to do it and you just think oh because I don't know him and there's so a few people have said no and there's there, you know there's a few who just don't want their picture taken which is fine you know um, uh, and you've got to respect that. Uh, I, I did do a little bit of a muck up with Mr. Daniel Kitson, which I mis- mistook something and obviously didn't take his picture for the book, but I had a lovely arty picture of him uh, on stage at a charity gig and I used that in the exhibition and, and um, he didn't want that and so it's not in the exhibition and it's completely off, which is fine, I understand. I, I know him from a long time ago and I didn't want to piss him off. Um, so there's been a little bit of miscommunication, but that's fine. Um, so, yeah. And... Do you always go black and white? Good question. I shoot in colour. Yeah. Um, no, I mean for PR shots, uh, obviously people want them, but I think a lot of the back, all my back, all my exhibition shots are, are black and white. Yeah. I just think there's a quality to it that that there's very few that I can look in colour and think, oh, that's better in colour. Very few, and 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 um, I don't know what it is about the black and white. There's something about it that's just timeless in a way. And then so. You obviously do a lot of um, photos for anyone that wants their photo taken as well. You did our yes. publicity shots a few years There's ago. There's one of you guys that I really like. I don't know if you use it, one with you jumping, yeah. aren't you standing still and one of you jumping up in the air. I'm jumping, I'm like a little But, it's, but it's, it looks so weird when on camera because it looks like you're f- kind of floating in a way yeah. sometimes. But I really, so, that, so I, yeah, so what was the question? <laughs> it, I just tell us a little bit about, you know, snapping for, for people for publicity I wonder whether if you walked up to Edinburgh this year would, would you kind of walk around and be like that's my photo that's my photo I notice your um, your old brick wall in in a lot of people's pictures yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah. Ah, Steve's taking that one because <laughs> I know that wall yeah yeah I've got to be a bit careful because you need it. sometimes it, you, the back yeah the back thing gives it away although I'm in a different place at the moment but it's a great wall isn't it it's um, a great wall. <laughs> But, uh, yes, I, uh, yes, I, he, Christian Riley's one I really liked last year when he's walking in the middle of the road. It's phenomenal. Yeah. It's a really good Something shot. about that. It's kind of Bob Dylan-esque, isn't it? And, and, and also, it, we just did it on location. So we were in the city and we had to run in the middle of the road when the red light went so there's no buses and just ran out. So we, had, we didn't have much time to get the shot. But there, so what I think is with people's publicity shots, you can take a headshot, which I'm doing with people, um, but I like the idea of being creative with it and saying, well, you know, because I know a lot of these people and they know, so yeah. But I'm not very good at Photoshop, so it has to be real in a way. Yeah. Um, so there's some very good photographers who are very good photographers and good Photoshops and know exactly how to put it together. But that's not my expertise and it's not what I really want to do, I think. I like nitty gritty real stuff. Um, so if that can help with someone's publicity, it's fine. But I'm very happy to take people's headshots as well, which I, I try and do for newbies as well and do a bit of a, bit of, um, a deal on it because nobody's got any money. Yeah. And if I can do it in one day and they can give them a, you know, 45 minutes rather than two hours or something like that, um, that's fine. If not, I have to hire a studio as well and if they want long shots as well. But yeah. Steve Best, thank you very much. A hey, pleasure. Thank you for listening to Talking Tricks with Caden Abel. Please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast.